Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll dive right into the scriptures. Father God in heaven, Lord, I thank you for uh, this morning, a time to gather with your people. Uh, God, as we uh, embark on a new new season and a new place, uh, God, we thank you that though our surroundings have changed, though our logistical details have changed, God, we thank you that you are the same uh, today and forevermore as you have always been. God, we thank you that the gospel, the good news, is the same. And God, we thank you that because of your goodness and because of your good news, uh, we can be forever changed to be your people. So God, I pray that uh, as we adjust to a new environment, God, that uh, you would quiet our hearts and quiet our minds. Uh, God, that you would ease our distractions, that we um, we may focus on you. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our minds to understand your word today, that you would open our hearts to receive the gospel, your good news. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would transform us to be more like your son, Jesus. Uh, God, that we would indeed be a people for your own possession who are zealous for good works. Uh, God, I pray uh, now that you would speak to us through your word for your glory and our joy, that the gospel may go forth in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, where we've been for the past several weeks. Um, We're going to be here this week and next week. uh, And then September 9th, we're starting a series on the book of Ephesians, which will be fantastic. Uh, So as we look forward to that, uh, what we've been doing is is seeing in Acts chapter 2, as I mentioned, we need to extend a little grace as things get adjusted here. So uh, pardon the technical issues. as we uh, look in the book of Acts chapter 2, we see what happens is, is God is, is gathering his people, calling his people together, what we know is the church, and that by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the good news is going forth and people's lives are being transformed. And so what we see in Acts chapter 2, where we've been the past couple of weeks, we see that, that, that what happens is a response to the good news by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, people are gathered together and are devoted to the teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. That God is gathering a people for himself, for his own possession, that they may be filled with joy and take the good news to all the ends of the earth. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayer. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. Friends, the gospel is the good news of the person and work of Christ that God saves sinners. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And this gospel changes everything for us. It changes who we are. changes what we do. It changes how we live. It changes our attitudes, our actions. It changes our motivations. It changes what we love and what we long for. And this is good news for us. Today we're looking at the topic of Christ-centered worship. Because everyone worships something or someone. Whatever the object of your devotion and attention, whatever has your most affection, wherever you devote your time, your money, your energy, whatever your heart longs for on a day-by-day basis is what you worship. Now, 
Some may think that's extreme for me to say because we think of, well, I, I get up and I, I long to see my friends, or I get up and I, I look forward to going to work because I love my job, or, or maybe you love your school, or your education, and, and, and whatever gets you going in the morning can actually become an object of worship. You see, friends, we were created to worship, but often what we do is we place something in our heart's affection or something in our mind's attention uh, that may be a good thing, but it's taking up the place where God ultimately should be in our lives. And we long after that, and it upstages the Creator who made us to worship Him. So many things that emerge in our lives that become idols for us to worship are oftentimes things such as money or status, job, a security, maybe, maybe pleasure, relationships, things that can be good things but become ultimate things and become our objects of worship and devotion. Author N.T. Wright in the book Simply Christian says, you become what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Those who worship money become, eventually, human calculating machines. Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness or prowess. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. So friends, we see that as we have been created to worship, if we are longing and worshiping for something other than Christ, it transforms us. It's the nature of worship to become more like what it is that has your devotion, your affection. What is it that you worship? Who is it that you worship? Who or what occupies the foremost place in your mind's attention? Who or what occupies the foremost position in your heart's affection? Who or what determines your day-by-day motivations? That, my friends, is who or what you worship could be a bad thing. It could be a good thing that you've made into an idol. But friends, the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Christ is that God saves sinners. He saves idolaters. He takes people who worship other things and transforms them to be worshipers of him. He transforms us from being idol worshipers to God worshipers. He takes us from being sinners and transforms us into being a holy people for his possession. You see, the gospel changes us to be redeemed by God. And we see in Acts chapter 2, this is uh, some description of what the early church was like, this newly formed gospel community, those who have been transformed by this good news. You see, everything changes for them. And, and we've been in this uh, passage for several weeks now. And we're highlighting certain facets of it to focus on what is the apostles' teaching that they were devoted to? What is the fellowship that they were devoted to? Today we're looking at, at, at the object of worship. Who, who were they worshiping and how are they worshiping? And why is that important? Friends, against the backdrop of the first century, I want us to see the, the radical nature of this transformed group of people, how they have radically been transformed to worship Christ. And so as we look at this passage again, we look at, at, at the Christ-centeredness of their worship, asking the questions, where are we to worship? Who are we to worship? And when are we to worship? These are good questions. So first, I want us to look at where do we worship? 
I mean, as we look at this passage, where is it that we're to worship? Look at what it says here in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we see in this passage yet again the location of worship. They, they spell it out here for us. Day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now, we look at that and we can quickly gloss over that and say, great, so they went to church and then they went home and had a meal afterwards, right? You could look at it like that, but I want us to see more of what's going on. The early church gathered together in the temple together, and then they gathered in their homes together. They were breaking bread, they were devoted to prayers, they were praising God, and they had glad and generous hearts. You see, throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, there's this theme of worship. In the book of Genesis, God created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, created them for relationship, not only with each other, but with himself to worship him. We see in Genesis the story of Noah after the great flood, the first thing he does when he opens the door to the ark and the animals scatter everywhere, he sets up an altar and worships God for his provision and protection. We see Abraham, too, was called out of, a, out of the place of, of his family and, and led somewhere else so that he could be uh, the forefather of a people that would worship God and, and that Abraham worships the Lord. And then in the book of Exodus, we see that God's people were set free from bondage in Egypt so they could be free to worship their God. For decades, they traveled through the desert, setting up a tabernacle, this portable worship service. Eventually, they landed in the promised land that God had given them. They set up a temple, and a temple was the place that God's presence was dwelling with his people. So God's people gathered for generations and generations, gathering together in the temple to worship their God who had redeemed them, who had saved them, who had freed them to be his people. We see during the time of Jesus, this temple worship was alive and well and actually uh, was corrupt in many ways. And in chapter 4 of the book of John, from where we got the name The Well for this church that is now transitioning to Redemption Church, John chapter 4, verse 20, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well, and she asks this question about the location and method of worship. She says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
So you see what's happening during the life and ministry of Jesus. There was division amongst where is the right place to worship? What is the right methodology of worship? God's people were wanting to worship him. The Samaritans worshiped God on one mountain. The Jews worshiped God on another mountain. And Jesus says, look, location is not the issue. The Father is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. So for us today, a crude analogy would be, well, where do we worship? Do we worship downtown or do we worship at a school in Augusta? I mean, do we, do we worship in like a cathedral setting or can we worship in like an education setting, like a, like a cafetorium at an elementary school? Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus commissions his disciples, commissions them to go out to the ends of the earth, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all the ends of the earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the witnesses that Jesus is the one coming to transform people to worship in spirit and in truth. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit empowers Peter to preach this great sermon saying, everything that you've always expected God to do is coming true in Jesus. Jesus has done these things. So when you ask the question, where do we worship? Uh, We want to worship rightly. Jesus shows up and says, I will transform your hearts to be worshipers. The issue is not where do we worship and maybe how do we worship, but that you just become a redeemed worshiper. What's more important is not that you go to the right place and do the right thing, but rather that you are the right person. Jesus came not to transform the location of worship, this temple mountain or this temple mountain. He didn't come to transform the the act of worship, like what liturgical thing do we do? He came to transform worshipers, to say, look, Samaritan woman, you're not to be a worshiper in this Samaritan context on this mountain, nor no, no are, are, are the Jews to remain in this context, but God is coming to transform the hearts of his people to become redeemed worshipers of God in spirit and in truth. So we see that in Acts chapter 2, Peter proclaims this amazing thing, and the result is what we've read today, that thousands of people come to know Jesus, and they were devoted to the teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, And they met together daily in the temple and in homes. Now, the setting for this was just on the heels of Pentecost, which was this great Jewish feast for thousands of people to gather from all parts of the land to gather together this large, I mean, just thousands of people, man, coming to worship the Lord. What's interesting is the early church sees no conflict with what was going on in the temple. I mean, Jesus didn't come and just jettison all of their heritage. He says, no, I'm going to redeem that worship heritage that you have. Jesus came to fulfill the temple worship law. So you see what happens here is that the early Christians didn't see Jesus as like a detached from Jewish tradition, but rather he was the fulfillment of that. And so they continued meeting in the temple, worshiping together. And we see also that they met in homes. Now, this is what I love, because if we see this, verse 46, they were, um, sorry, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. All right, temple homes, you with me? They gathered together for large corporate worship gatherings, celebrating who God is and what he's done, just like they've seen throughout all of the Old Testament time and time again. They gather together, worship who God is and what he's done, and then they meet in their homes. You see, 
personal property for them was to be stewarded for the building up of the gospel community, to worship God together, to create worshipers, to redeem worshipers. You see, at the end of the day, friends, gospel worship, Christ-centered worship is not about location. It's not about style. It's about transformed, redeemed people. That's what it's all about. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to transform idol worshipers into God worshipers. He came to transform the most religious worshipers into humble, gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-saturated Jesus worshipers. He came to do that for the most devout religious and the most wicked of sinners. So wherever you fit in that spectrum today, I mean, this may be new for you. You may say, I've not been to church in years, and now I'm in a school. This is weird. Maybe you've been in church all your life, and you've never met in a church in a school before at the end of the day. Jesus has gathered you here and is transforming your heart. The most wicked among us, the most righteous among us, need to be transformed from idol worshipers, from sinners, into Christ worshipers. Here's the good news that Jesus says in John 14, speaking that the Holy Spirit is dwelling with us. He says, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Friends, the Holy Spirit of God is no longer limited to the temple in Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit of God dwells with you and in you. That's good news. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to some land far away to meet with the Lord. He dwells in you and with you. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? He's speaking to a congregation of believers here, not just individuals. He's saying, look, the gathered people of God, the Holy Spirit is dwelling with you. You are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So friends, what I want us to see here is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, transforms our worship. We no longer are isolated having to worship at a certain location, but we worship in spirit and in truth because Jesus transforms our hearts. The Holy Spirit dwells with us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. This is good news. It's because of this that we can meet in a school and even worship at all. Secondly, we must ask ourselves this question. Like, so where do we worship? We see the first question, where do we worship? Well, we can worship anywhere and everywhere. That's kind of a little loose good news, don't you think? For here at Redemption Church, this means worship can happen anywhere. It can happen in this school. It can happen in our building downtown. It can happen in your homes when you meet for missional communities, casual hangouts. Anywhere and everywhere you go is worship. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is with you and dwells in you. Okay, but the second question is, well, not only where do we worship, but when do we worship? Because you see, in the first century, there were times that you would gather in the temple for worship. You would go to the temple. Worship happened at this location. You would go there. There would be a time of worship, and then you would leave. So there was temporal times of worship. The Feast of Pentecost was one of many great feasts when God's people would gather together on an annual basis, gather together, have a great feast, a great time of worship, and then they would all go home. But the first century church flips it on its head because the gospel is so revolutionary. No longer is, is worship restricted to this location, nor is worship restricted to this time frame. 
Scripture here tells us in verse 46 that they met day by day. Day by day. Now, that doesn't mean that they had like, you know, specific times. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, we don't know. But the, but the phrase day by day just means it was just part of life. It was just this part of life. You get up, you have breakfast, you go wash your camel, and you come back and you go, you go worship with God's people. Or you go to the store, go to work, come home, worship with God's people. Well, day by day, there were structured meetings, but also there was just this organic rhythm that happened with God's people. Scripture tells us here that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We know we have that in Scripture for you and I today. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to each other because not only was Scripture God's revelation of the good news, but living it out happened in the context of community. So we see that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and prayers. Prayer. This is a whole... um, Prayer is is huge in Scripture. If you read in the Bible, time and time again, God's people met corporately to pray. God's saints meet privately with the Lord to pray. We see that the prophets one-on-one spent time with the Lord and prayed. Jesus himself spent one-on-one time with his Father to pray. He also prayed with his friends, his disciples. Prayer is gathered and corporate. In the first century, when they would meet in the temple... They would use the book of Psalms as, as, as their worship liturgy. Prayer is also personal and private. I mean, think about this, friends. When God saves you, he is your father. He transforms your heart to be his child. So you don't have to restrict your communication with God the Father because Jesus has saved you and the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart. You now commune with the Father. If the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and with you, you can talk to God. You can be honest with the Lord. Prayer includes times of praising God, thanking God, asking God for what you need, praying on behalf of others. Prayer includes repenting of sin and resting in the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. There's a pastor and author who's a friend of mine, Winfield Bevins, wrote a book called Prayer Life. He says prayer is as essential to the spiritual life as air is to our lungs or water is to the body. Friends, prayer is is the lifeblood of you and I as Christians. So when Jesus transforms us from idol worshipers, we no longer devote our time and money and energy to those things that would draw us away from God, but we devote our time and energy and our whole being to what draws us closer to God. And prayer is not just a means of getting something from God, but rather it's getting to know God. So as God draws you in, what's your prayer life look like? I'm going to ask you this. Do you pray ever? Secondly, do you know how to pray? I'm not convinced that a lot of us do. I think that sometimes we, we want to pray, but we don't know what to say. Today I will post some resources for us on the city, maybe some guides that will help you in your prayer life, your, your devotional life to learn how to pray. You can open the book of Psalms and read the book of Psalms out loud as, as, a, as a prayer to God. You can go for a walk and talk to God like you would a father. Talk to him out loud. Don't go to the mall to pray. People, they may have you arrested, but like go for a walk somewhere and just, and just talk out loud to God. When you're driving, pray. 
Just talk out loud. You can even put it like a headset and people think you're on the phone. It's fine. Just talk to the Lord because he knows your heart. Friends, when we gather together, we, we, we often will read prayers or have corporate confessions of sins and, and, and time to pray together as a corporate body of believers. This is good. This is what, this is what Christ-centered community looks like. When you gather in missional communities in your homes this week, this is a time for you to pray. Spend time praying for each other. Pray for yourself. Pray for me. Pray for the leaders here. Pray for this school. Pray for this principal of this school who loves the Lord and is thrilled for us to be here. Convinced that the the children of this school will have the the rippling effect of, of God's grace to them because we've worshiped here on Sunday. Do you pray? Do you know how to pray? So first we see that, that Christ-centered worship transforms us to not only worship in, in, in a location, but we worship anywhere and everywhere, in the temple and in homes. We worship corporately together. We worship in smaller groups. When do we worship? We worship day by day. And that prayer is central to our worship, just as oxygen is to our lungs or water is to our body. Thirdly, and lastly, well, who is the focus of our worship? Who is it that we are to worship? It's simple, perhaps, to say, Jesus, and you're right. But let me explain. Every intentional act of the early church was pointing to Christ. Everything they did was looking to Christ or in response to who Jesus is and what he he had done for them. The early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is the teaching that God had given them to to proclaim to them, to instruct. We have have it in the scriptures here, in our Bibles. This is what they taught. They were were devoted to the fellowship. This is God's outworking. As God is redeeming other idolaters and other sinners and gathering people for his own possession, when we meet together, you don't even have to like each other. You just have to look at each other and say, you know what? God's redeeming you. Therefore, I'm going to be your friend because this is an act of worship. Not worshiping the other I'm not going to worship you. But as we gather together, I'm excited to see what God's doing in your life. You belong to Jesus. If you're not smiling right now, do I need to take you to Reinhardt's afterwards? O-M. Never mind. This is good news, people. This is good news. God has saved you. You walk in here today with hurt. You've been wounded. You've walked in here today with a hang-up, addiction, disheartening situations. Maybe your job stinks. Maybe your relationships are broken. God is saving you. He loves you. You belong to him. This is good news. You may have walked out of the most sinful, wicked, nasty situation this morning and God loves you and he's saving you. You may have walked in here with some righteous, I can't wait to come in and see how this church is going to botch worship in a school. God's saving you from that attitude. Can't wait to see what Jeremy says to put his foot in his mouth. Fine, I repent, Jesus saves me. The good news is that Christ is reorienting our hearts personally and collectively toward him. And this is such good news. When the church gathered, it says that they were devoted to the teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread. Now this is an awesome phrase, my friends. 
Breaking of bread has multiple connotations in Scripture. It could mean what we know as communion, the Lord's Supper that we will have here in a little bit. But it also can mean just to share a meal together. There is something extremely biblical about eating food. This passage was written, this this response to the gospel happened on the heels of Pentecost, a feast. God's people were worshiping together, having this huge feast. They would get in the temple and say, look how good God is. Look at how he has saved us. Look at how he's provided for us. And the first century Christian says, you know, the party doesn't end here. Let's go back to my house and have a sandwich and thank God for his provision. Anytime you meet together and eat a meal, don't just say, God, thank you for this hamburger, but get together and say, I mean, just thank God for his goodness that you have hands to grab the burger with. Thank God that you have friends to commune with. Thank God for his goodness. I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. You see, breaking bread for communion points us to Jesus. In a few minutes, we're going to come over and have the time of communion together where we celebrate broken bread for the death of Jesus. His body is broken so that you can worship the Lord. This bread represents Jesus' body being brutally broken so that you can be a redeemed child of God. That's breaking of bread. We do that together corporately. But also, when you go home and you have somebody over for lunch, that's a time to worship as well. That's a time to get together and say, what's God doing in our lives? Like, like communion points us to what Jesus did for us, but a meal with another believer shows what God is doing in us right now. You get me? Like, we can come and have communion and say, this is God, God's son died so that I could be forgiven of sin. Now, let's go to lunch and talk about what sin I've been forgiven of. Does that make sense? Let's, let's see how God has changed me from an idol worshiper to a Christ worshiper by his broken body. We celebrate communion, right? And then let's go grab something to eat afterwards, and I can tell you how, how those idols creep up in my life and how God is so faithful and good to bring repentance and transformation. You see, the early Christian church not only worshiped together corporately in the temple and in homes, they worshiped with uh, prayers and the breaking of bread because the place of worship was no longer here or there, but it's anywhere where God's people are. That's where we worship. The time of worship is no longer just specifically corporate gathering events, but it's an ongoing daily rhythm that happens because God is transforming people to be worshipers. <clears throat> and the object of our worship is transformed to worship Jesus with everything we are and everything we do. Many of you guys may have heard this on the news yesterday, that astronaut Neil Armstrong died. All right, he walked on the moon. You know what I'm talking about? I used to want to be an astronaut. Just thought you should know that. Went to space camp. Neil Armstrong died yesterday. And he was a good grief. He died yesterday, and he was the first guy to walk on the moon. And shortly after they landed on the moon, there was a moment of silence that um, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong said, we're going to take a moment of, of silence just to reflect on what just happened. Right? We landed on the moon. They really landed on the moon, you guys. It wasn't a desert. It's not a movie. They landed on, they landed on the moon. Right? 
So after the, you know, they, they landed on the moon, okay, this epic, historic, monumental event. And they said, we need to take a second just to reflect on this. We need to just take our breath and just figure out what just happened. Some of you may know this, but most of you may not. That in that moment of silence, Buzz Aldrin actually had, he brought with him a small package containing bread and wine. And on the surface of the moon, he had communion. On the surface of the moon, Buzz Aldrin opened up a package of bread and a small vial of wine, read some scripture, said a prayer, and had communion. Why am I telling you this? In that moment, as they were reflecting on the events of the day, the astronauts worshipped. They worshipped God for what had just happened. All right, nowhere in Scripture do you see, you know, an argument between do we worship in the temple in Jerusalem or do we worship on the moon, Jesus? In that moment, the astronauts were thanking God for his creation. I mean, he said he put his thumb up, like he's standing on the moon, and he puts his thumb up to cover the earth, and he says, in that moment, I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very small. Worshiping God for his creation on earth and on the moon, worshiping God for safe passage, worshiping God for just this amazing epic thing that just happened. And later, Buzz Aldrin said, it's interesting to think that the first liquid ever poured on the moon and the first food ever eaten were for Christian communion. Boom. Who wants to plant a church on the moon? You see, worship can be epic, like communion on the moon, but worship is also very intimate. Worship can be large as we gather together corporately and celebrate communion and sing loud praises to God and pray together. And worship can be very intimate and private in your home, sharing a meal with a friend, talking about who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life. Here at Redemption Church, we want to stress both corporate worship gatherings as we proclaim this good news, as we sing the praises of our Lord together, as we have communion together, and we want to stress worship in our homes, in your marriage, in your family, in your neighborhoods, in your missional communities, DNA groups. Because the gospel is not only showing us a new how-to of worship, but it's about reorienting our hearts and transforming us as worshipers. Christ-centered worship, Holy Spirit-empowered worshipers, worship in spirit and in truth. This is something that Jesus does for us. This is why we gather every week. And friends, it is my hope and prayer that moving forward as, as a church that we would not be hung up on whether we worship at this location or this location. I don't care. You know, this is a school. There's no telling what can happen. We're praying that the Lord would give us a permanent location somewhere, someday. But we may be like the Israelites who tabernacled for 40 years, setting up and taking down, setting up and taking down. All right? I don't want to discourage our volunteer setup takedown team. 40 years, set up, take down, set up, take down. Oh, good grief. God may give us a building tomorrow. It'd be awesome. 
In the meantime, it's not about location. Where do we worship? It's, it's an attitude of the heart. We worship wherever we are because we are worshipers. And God is saving us. He has saved us, he is saving us, and he will save us. That's good news. So as Redemption Church moves forward as our hope and prayer that we would be ongoingly transformed in our worship, that we'd be ongoingly believing the gospel, ongoingly worshiping Jesus, ongoingly repenting of sin and idols. I'll leave you with this quote from Harold Best who wrote a great book called Unceasing Worship. He says, Authentic worship is a continuous outpouring of all that we are and can ever hope to become in light of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for a time just to open your word. Um, God, for the, for the, uh, just the weirdness of getting used to a new environment, Lord, I thank you that, uh, that you were good and that your love endures forever. And God, that you were transforming us to be your people more and more. And God, I pray that you would encourage us as we open your word uh, privately in our, in our homes, in our personal time, that you would speak through your word to us, that we would respond in worship and belief and repentance. God, that we would be people who pray. God, there's so much to pray about. There's so much to praise you for and thank you for. God, there's so many needs in this room that we need to ask you to intervene. God, for those who are sick, who need healing, God, we ask you to do that. God, for those hearts who are hardened or battling sin or idols, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts and transform us. God, I pray for a great deal of unity amongst your people. God, as we seek to be a worshiping people who who worship together day by day in the temple and in homes, as we gather together on Sundays and as we meet throughout the week, God, through our structured meetings for worship gatherings and missional communities and and through our, our loose hangout times of ultimate Frisbee and whatever else we do, God, at the end of the day, <clears throat> it's all about who you are and what you've done and who we are becoming in light of that good news. So God, I pray that your spirit would move. Bring our hearts to repentance and belief in your gospel time and time again. We thank you for your glory and our joy and that the good news may go forth to this city and beyond. In Christ's name, amen.